You're listening to Real Presence Live on the Real Presence Radio Network. Join the conversation on our Facebook page or on Twitter. And be sure to like and follow us for more great Catholic content. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to this next uh, installment or half hour of uh, COVID-free listening on Real Presence Live. And we have with us Steve Weidenkopf, who's no uh, stranger to this program. We've had him on, I think this will be your fourth time, am I right, right, Steve? I think that's right, yeah. Thanks for having me on again. Right, and uh, you're here to talk, you, you've been uh, in, uh, giving us all sorts of good information about uh, uh, history in the Catholic Church, and a lot of it, you know, kind of uh, debunking a lot of the uh, popular misconceptions that are out there Uh in the world, and uh, today we're going to be talking about the Protestant Reformation, or perhaps more rightly, revolution, and uh, you know what did Martin Luther actually intend? So, why don't you, for the benefit for those who might be tuning in for the first time, just give yourself a brief introduction and then just kind of launch into it? Yeah, sure, absolutely. So, uh, I'm an adjunct professor uh, at Christendom Graduate School of Theology in Alexandria, Virginia where I teach classes on uh, on church history and the Crusades. And uh, I've written a multitude of different books over the last several years on Catholic history, um, including the most recent book called Light from Darkness, Nine Times the Catholic Church Was in Turmoil but Came Out Stronger Than Before, uh, from Catholic Answers Press. And uh, always happy to uh, to talk church history uh, with, with you guys and uh, uh, to help people understand our, our own Catholic uh, history and, and grow deeper in our love for the church. Okay, and then what a timely um, book! You know, I think that sometimes when we're living in the era where there's difficulty in the church, you know, we feel like it's gloom and doom. But to look back on history and see that we've survived before um, gives us hope. <laughs> yeah, gives us hope for now yeah. because maybe we're in that tenth, uh, mm-hmm. that tenth uh, area of uh, what was the word that you used? It wasn't chaos, but uh, turmoil. Turmoil. turmoil yeah. 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 So well. I guess we'll be we'll get a little bit of uh, Lutheran history today too, won't we? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's uh, just and just to comment on what Doreen said there, I and mean, it's true. It's it's you know one of the reasons why I wrote my recent book, at least, was was to show not only that you know times have been bad in the church's past, and and the church has you know made it through those, if you will, but but to even more importantly highlight that it's it's a result of those crises that the Church was able to bring about a time of reform and renewal and, and restoration. And so, you know, it's not always a, a bad thing, necessarily, to, to be, you know, dealing with crises in the Church. In fact, there, there have always been them, if you will. Um, but they do lead to greater things when we, we look at our history and see that. Not always necessarily something that's, it's, uh, you know, uh, comforting to people who are living through a, a difficult time of turmoil or crisis in the Church, because that could be very difficult, obviously, to want a lesson that. Um, but, but the lesson, though, is for us that, that as we go through these crises, or even if we are in one now, if you will, there is, you know, light at the end of the tunnel, if you will. God does bring light out of that darkness. And, and the same thing happened here in the, in the 16th century with the topic you wanted to talk about here today with the Protestant Revolution slash Reformation. Um, that's exactly what did happen, right? Um, this this disruptive time that occurred in the 16th century in the Church's life led, later on in that century, to a great reform and renewal called the Catholic Reformation, wherein the Church actually did reform herself quite substantially, and it led to a new vitality 
in Catholic living. Uh, great Catholic missionary movements uh, flowered as a result of that, of that time. New religious uh, orders, like the Society of Jesus, um, came about as a result of that crisis of the Protestant re- Revolution as well. So, um, but that's maybe the rest of the story. We've we got to get to the beginning of the story first, right, to talk about what, what did happen uh, and what was that crisis called the Catholic, or the uh, Protestant Reformation slash Revolution. Oh, take it away. <laughs> and so, uh, so, so really, the, the kind of the, the beginnings of this time period, really, of that crisis, starts earlier than, than the 16th century, right? The seeds of the Protestant Revolution, if you will, really are found in the 14th century in another crisis uh, that happens in the papacy. And actually, it's a series of crises that happens in the papacy. Uh, at the beginning of the 14th century, we have the infamous uh, Avignon papacy at the time when the popes lived in the south of France, in the city of Avignon. They weren't actually living in the city of Rome. And that's an, abs- that's a, uh, an, an abuse known as absenteeism, where a bishop doesn't live within, within his own diocese. And that, sadly, had been a problem in the Church's past, even before the 14th century. But now in the 14th century, in, in a very you know, open way uh, and, and universal way, it, it impacts the, the papacy. And the popes live in the south of France for 70 years. So it's not just, you know couple of months or a year or two here, it's, I mean, multiple decades um, beyond a generation, and that causes significant problems, and it begins, what that causes, in essence, really, is a lack of respect for the papacy. Secular rulers see the Pope living in the south of France and see and begin to think of him as nothing more than just a, a minion or a puppet of the French king, if you will. Now, the popes who lived during that time weren't, weren't that. They weren't just doing whatever the French king wanted them to do. Uh, but you could see how other rulers, you know, the English king or the Holy Roman Emperor or others, might see that and think, you know, oh, well, the French king's got the pope in his pocket. So that causes a lack of respect and a lack of, of uh, you know, looking at the pope as someone who is supposed to unify the secular rulers of Christendom. And so once the, the popes actually come back from Avignon to Rome at the end of the 14th century, really through the efforts of St. Catherine of Siena, then another crisis happens within the papacy, which also lays the foundation, if you will, for the Protestant Revolution later. And that's what's known as the Great Western Schism. And that's where we have at one point uh, two, and then later on three men claiming to be pope. Um, so now during this time, there's only one validly elected pope, but there are many anti-popes claiming to be the, the legitimate pope. And we've had anti-popes in, in the Church's history before that time, uh, but this particular situation is is grave and problematic because, again, these secular rulers had already begun to distrust the papacy when, they, when the popes were living in the south of France. Now they come back and there's multiple popes, so now you're multiple people claiming to be pope, and now you have secular rulers kind of lining up behind different claimants to the throne, right? You know, some people are backing the legitimate pope in Rome. Some secular rulers are, are backing the, uh, the anti-pope who moved to Avignon. And then some, you know, back the anti-pope who's living in Pisa. So there's, you know, there's, there's this fractioning, if you will, of unity within Christendom um, because of the papacy, which is supposed to be a, a source of unity within Christendom uh, and within the Church. And so that later then begins to continue to pose problems as we move into the 15th century, where the middle of that century you have what's known as the series of uh, Renaissance popes. These men who, ten popes from the middle of the 15th century into the early 16th century, who, you know, for all intents and purposes, really the best way to describe them is that they were men who were focused more on temporal affairs, on secular affairs, on worldly affairs, 
than they were on being the universal shepherd of the church. And so all this this crisis and problems and turmoil in the papacy of the 14th century leads to these very secularly-minded popes in the 15th century who are engaged in all kinds of, of um, abuses, if you will, right? There's absenteeism, as I mentioned, bishops or popes not living in, in the diocese in which they are the bishop. There's also the problem of nepotism. Many of these Renaissance popes will appoint their nephews or other family members or even their illegitimate sons to you know, important positions uh, within the Curia, within the Church, and that causes resentment and problems uh, among various Italian families, if you will. Then there's also the abuse of uh, what's called pluralism, which is one man being bishop of a multitude of dioceses, um, which, you know, is obviously problematic and scandalous. And so, you know, the Church has experienced many of these different forms of crises or abuses in previous centuries, and they didn't necessarily lead to any kind of huge splitting of Christendom like it does here in the 16th century with Luther and his revolt. Um, so why does that happen here in the 16th century? Well, it happens, I think, again, because of all of these, these kind of building up of all this crisis in the papacy as we're moving forward through, uh, through the 16th century. In previous centuries, the popes had actually been uh, the ones who initiated reform and who oversaw reform within the Church. And so they weren't necessarily the ones participating in the abuses, but they saw other bishops or other people in the Church who were um, committing these abuses, and then the Pope stepped in to solve the crisis, if you will, and to bring about reform and renewal. Now, sadly, in the Church's life during these centuries, it is the Pope uh, and the Popes who are participating in these abuses and providing problems and, and being the cause of scandal of the Church. And that brings about resentment, right, uh, as I mentioned, through the secular rulers and other people within um, Christendom, and then that really begins to uh, lay the groundwork for this, um, you know, this Augustinian professor of theology at the University of Wittenberg, a man by the name of Martin Luther, who who begins to question some of the Church's basic doctrine, and, uh, and w- through the questioning of that basic doctrine, he then publishes a treatise in October of 1517, where he he takes issue and umbrage with some of these abuses that are ongoing, um, but but it doesn't stop there because other people in the church's life were having issues with the abuses and calling them out. Uh, but his Luther's issue really began when he attacked the foundation of various uh, Catholic theological doctrines, and that's what really led him into into uh, problems, if you will. So he had some he had a legitimate beef, but he kind of. Uh, uh, Got off the rails, it sounds like. Yeah, in a certain sense, it's a good way to put it. I mean, he and along with many others, right, were criticizing some of the abuses that were ongoing. Um, and the problem with, with Luther and, and with, um, you know, the narrative that's associated with it is this, is that many times Luther, even in our, in our modern age in particular, among many Protestants, you know, he's, he's, his case or his what he did, and we can, we'll talk about that, I think, a little bit more after the break, but what he did was it always presented as, well, the Church was bad, the Church was corrupt, and here comes Luther and all these other reformers like Calvin and Zwingli, and they come along and they rescue the, you know, the Christian faith from the clutches of this corrupt Catholic Church uh, because of all this abuse that's ongoing. And that's, that's a very simplistic understanding of what happened, uh, and it paints Luther in the best light possible and the Church in the worst light possible, and life is a little more gray than that, and, and not as clear-cut as that as well. So we can talk about that um, maybe after the break. Sounds good. Yes, and I have a question for after the break as well, um, but we'll, 
we'll yeah we're um, co- yeah we're coming up and- on the break right now and uh, and one of the, we we let in with uh, the question is it more properly to uh, call this a revolution or a reformation and we'll talk about that too right after the break so stay with us more to come with Steve Weidenkopf on Real Presence Live. This is Real Presence Live, where the focus is not on the evil around us, but on conversion and mercy through the good news that is always good. We're local, engaging, and live on the Real Presence Radio Network. SJ Machine, proudly named after and dedicated to St. Joseph, provides machining and induction heat treating to a variety of industries. Just as St. Joseph worked diligently to meet his family's needs, SJ Machine strives to understand and meet our customers' production needs. Prototype to production, working together towards success. SJ Machine can be reached at 701-347-0155 and are a proud supporter of the Real Presence Radio Network. This is Father Pfeiffer of the Diocese of Fargo just taking a moment to recognize the dignity and the purpose of prayer in our life. You know, as we drive through the countryside and the prairies here in the Midwest, there you see many farmsteads that have been abandoned. Many times the soul can be like those farmsteads in many ways of preventive maintenance is not used. And the shingles fall off. And all of a sudden, after many years without, the building starts to collapse. The same can be true with our soul. That's why it's important that we acknowledge God every day. We relate to Him the good, the bad, the joys, the struggles, the difficulties, the pains, and the burdens. After we acknowledge God and we relate, it's important also to sit in silence, to receive the goodness of God, to hear the voice of God. Many people get discouraged in prayer because the receiving is the most difficult part. We need to remember, Moses did not hear the voice of the Lord for 40 years. He lived. He did the will of God. When God does not act, we do not hear His voice. He is still doing things in and through our hearts. This is Dr. Ryan Sapo with Lumen Vision in Fargo. Lumen Vision specializes in pediatric eye care and vision therapy. We partner with a national infant eye exam program called Infant C, which provides eye exams for any baby under 12 months old. Many of the major childhood eye problems, such as lazy eyes, eye turns, and ocular diseases, can be detected in this early intervention exam. Infant C eye exams can be scheduled online at www.lumen.vision. Lumen Vision is a proud supporter of babies everywhere and a proud sponsor of Real Presence Radio. This is Real Presence Live on the RPR Network, bringing you stories of faith and hope through local hosts and guests from across the Upper Midwest. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, Real Presence listeners. We're happy that you're with us on this kind of chilly and cloudy spring day in Fargo, North Dakota, but I hope it's sunny and beautiful where you are. Um, We're happy to have with us again Steve Weidenkopf, who has been informing us and helping us review what led up to the Protestant Reformation slash slash revolution. And um, so I'm going to welcome Steve back and my husband, who just came back in the room. Thank you, Jack. (laughs) And um, let you take it from where you left off, Steve, which was Luther and... Well, we were going to talk about, at some point, the why to call it a revolution versus a reformation. I I guess I can understand that from a Catholic perspective. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, uh, I mean, the Protestant Reformation, that term itself, is a a Protestant term, right? Because it was Protestants see what happens here in the 16th century as a reform. Uh, They believe that these very early Protestant 
uh, thinkers and theologians, Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, others, that they reformed the Church, right? That they returned the, the Christian Church, if you will, from their perspective, to what it, what it was in the early centuries of the Christian faith. Um, because they see, again, that the, that the Catholic Church, in their mind, had corrupted somehow this, this early form of the Christian faith over the centuries. And what these men did in the 16th century was then reform it and bring back a more pristine version, if you will, of the Christian faith. Um, and, and frankly, that, that uh, narrative, if you will, is, is really uh, originates with one of these, these uh, you know, theologians during his time, John Calvin, who was a Swiss, um, French, but he ultimately is known for his time in, in Geneva, in, in modern-day Switzerland, where he, he, he that, he's the one that originates that narrative, and that's, that says, you know, this is what we were doing. We're really reforming the faith, and, and you know, the early centuries of, of the Church is what we're representing or bringing back, uh, because the Catholic Church had been corrupted and had corrupted the early uh, understanding of the Christian faith and, and uh, all of its doctrines. Um, which is a bit nonsense, you know, when you look at, or it is nonsense, when you look at the early history of the Church, centuries of the Church, what, what Christians in the early centuries believed and how they lived, very much uh, so uh, very Catholic, uh, was Catholic, uh, and continues to be Catholic, if you will. But that's the narrative that these Protestant uh, you know, revolutionaries really fostered, and it's really, it's it continues to be perpetuated, sadly, in our own day and age. But that's why I like to refer to the time period here as a Protestant Revolution, because that's really what it was. When you read the writings of Calvin and Luther and others, you see that that's exactly what they're doing, that they it's a theological revolution. Um, and, you know, basic-held Christian doctrines and the understanding of those doctrines, which have been held for centuries, um, all of a sudden become uh, overturned, right? That there's new interpretations of those doctrines, a new way of living the Christian faith, uh, that's presented by these individuals, um, and you know they they could could say that they were trying to reform the church and bring the church back to its original state, uh, but when you look at their actions, look at their writings, that's not what they did at all, right? Um, I mentioned earlier that you know the narrative tends to be that the church was so corrupted that you needed to have these the this this reformation from these individuals, and that's what they were doing. But as I mentioned, right, the, there had been corruption and abuses in the Church's centuries before this time, before the 16th century, and there had, had been no major theological revolution or breaking or fracturing of the unity of, of the Catholic world uh, before that. Little, you know, there's side note with differences between, you know, the Eastern uh, Christians and Western Christians and some issues in the 11th century and even other centuries associated with that, but that's a wholly different uh, topic and different story and different reasons for why that division, if you will, uh, came about. But in in the Western world, in, in the Western understanding of the faith, right, there had not been, uh, in previous centuries, despite corruption and abuses in the Church, any kind of major fracturing. Um, and that's, again, because what Luther brings about is he sees this great opportunity in the 16th century to criticize some of these abuses. Uh, one, you know, chief among them was the so-called selling of indulgences, um, or the practice of the granting of indulgence. And Luther got himself not into trouble with the Church by by criticizing the abuse, um, abuses that were happening, but rather got himself into trouble because, in terms of indulgences at least, he questioned uh, and doubted the authority of the Pope himself to actually even grant an indulgence. And that's a doctrinal issue. That's not just simply criticizing an inappropriate practice. That's actually calling into question a doctrine of the Church, uh, and that that is a serious offense. 
And ultimately, Luther is declared by the Church uh, a heretic, and his many of his teachings are labeled and, and seen as heretical because they were a complete rejection of Catholic doctrine. And then later on, he's ultimately declared a heretic by the secular authority as well, by the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V, because during the time in the 16th century, and I think we've talked about this in a previous show on the Inquisition, that heresy at this time in, in, in the Church's life was seen not just as a, a uh, you know a church crime, a spiritual crime, if you will, or a spiritual problem, but was also, from the secular perspective, seen as a as a secular crime, as a secular um, you know issue, because you know Christians lived in unity in in Christendom and were united by their faith, and so heretics when they when they arose, they called into question that they broke that unity, and they also usually brought with them violence. Uh, and secular rulers were concerned with heresy because they didn't want, you know, violence to break out. They're, they're charged with ensuring peace and security in their realms. And when heresy erupts, violence comes with it. And that's sadly what we see here happen in the 16th century as well. Towards the end of the 16th century, what begins as a theological war, if you will, or a theological revolution, turns into a political revolution and then turns into actual warfare, where you have, you know, Catholic and Lutheran and Catholic and Protestant forces fighting each other in Europe for the next century. Luther's revolt uh, produces a hundred years of conflict in most of the major areas of Europe, um, culminating later on, even in the 17th century, in what's known as the Thirty Years' War in German in German territories uh, that was especially bloody and devastating. So, um, you know, that, that's the ultimate result of, of, a, of this, this movement, if you will. And so, you know, that, that's why I like to refer to it as a revolution, because a revolution seeks to take that which exists and destroy it and replace it with something different and something unique. A reformation takes that which exists and wants to restore it, wants to purify, wants to get rid of abuses and things like that. Uh, and although, you know, some of the early Protestant uh, revolutionaries and some of their uh, later on, you know, created historical narrative likes to paint these these men like Luther, Calvin, and Zwingli and others as reformers, they really weren't. When you take the time to read their writings, you see that very clearly. Um, in my one of my classes at the grad school, I have my graduate students read Luther's actual treatises. In 1520, he wrote three specific treatises where he outlines and outlines his beliefs and his teachings, um, and it's quite eye-opening reading. I mean, most Lutherans haven't actually probably read Luther's uh, writings, frankly, although he was a prodigious author. Um, and you see in his writings very clearly that he is he's calling for the, you know, the uh, for example, the eradication of all of the sacraments except for two. Um, he calls for, you know, the uh, ending of monasticism. He calls for the the German princes and nobles to take control of the church and to establish a national German church and separate it from the Pope and Rome. Um, but these are not the writings and, and the activities uh, and the thinking of someone who wants to reform the church and get rid of abuses, but someone who is creating something different, and that is a revolution. Steve, did any bishops follow um, Luther or Zwingli or Kelvin? Yeah, I mean, some men did. Some some clerics, you know, were, uh, you know, bishops and priests left the church, if you will, and, and became Protestant um, as this you know movement continued on here in the 16th century. Um, but but not many uh, in terms of bishops, uh, you know, there because 
again, for a bishop to, to leave, they would have to do so in a way that was uh, in an area that, that they had a Protestant ruler that would then, you know, uh, can allow them to continue to uh, be as influential as they were as, as a Catholic bishop, if you will. So you, you stood the chance if you were a bishop, you would lose a lot of property, frankly, a lot of wealth um, if, you, if you went from Catholic to Lutheran. So not many bishops, uh, but definitely priests. And, and theologians and, and just, you know, your your general Catholic laity, sadly. Would those bishops have ordained other men? Or would they, did they, I mean, because they didn't believe in the uh, Holy Orders as a sacrament, was there any you know, record of ordination of men under those bishops that left? Yeah, no, definitely not. I mean, the, the Catholic, or the Protestant understanding of, see, Luther did not see the pre, and neither did Calvin and the other uh, Protestant uh, theologians at the time, they didn't understand this, the priesthood in the same sense as the, uh, the Catholic doctrine, the Catholic understanding of the priesthood. So there was no sacrificial nature to the priesthood. There's no real ordination. There's an appointment, if you will. There's um, this understanding that, uh, you know, a priest is, is nothing more than just a minister who's kind of like an administrator, an organizer, a preacher, uh, someone who knows the, the doctrines and teaches them to others, if you will. But no, no actual like establishment of a separate kind of church with valid ordination and things like that. Gotcha. Um, one other question was, um, oh dear, what was my question? <laughs> <laughs> You're old enough. <laughs> I am way old enough. <laughs> um, oh, well, ahead, you think, ahead, well, I, yeah. I have a comment. One of them was, you know, you mentioned the uh, the uh, the bad popes during the Renaissance, and I remember a number of years ago reading a book called The Bad Popes, which I think probably encompassed that time. And the one thing that I took away from him at the end was that uh, I couldn't help but conclude that uh, by, uh, you know, kind of uh, successfully uh, getting through all of this turmoil, that the Holy Spirit does indeed guide the truth. <laughs> Or guide the church, excuse me. Okay, I thought of my question. Okay, you got one minute. Is the declaration of being a heretic the same as formal excommunication? Uh, No, usually there's two different steps, right? So you can be, uh, usually what happens is your writing is considered to be heretical or suspected of heresy, and you've given opportunities to recant. Uh, and to change those writings, and if you don't, and Luther was at the time, if you don't, then uh, after a period of time, then there's a, a formal declaration of excommunication, usually, which occurs, and that that, that, that is what happened to Luther here in the 16th century. So, so he was originally ex- in. He was excommunicated. Okay, yeah. okay. Yeah. we got a we got a hard break coming up here, uh, Steve. We want to thank you though before that and uh, for being on, and we hope we can have you come on again. And all of you listeners, stay tuned for more Real Presence.